Please take your copy of God's Word. Let's turn together to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, our text this morning, verses 29 to 32. As we are continuing in this series that we've called Reset, Becoming the Church Culture Jesus Wants Us to Be, um, just want to remind you that part of the reason why we're talking about church culture really connects uh, to the document that we've put in the bulletin a couple of times over the last several weeks uh, that the session approved last August on what is a mature disciple here at IPC and, and what is the mature community that forms those disciples. Well, culture is what ultimately shapes the community. It's those things that we most value, the way we narrate our mission, um, who's at the center of it all. Of course, that's Jesus, our only true hero. And so part of culture is how we relate to one another. What I want to suggest to you this morning is that compassion, not criticism, is how we are called to relate to one another. And that's what this passage teaches us, this section, this smaller section and a larger section that Paul has in Ephesians 4 on practices and attitudes to put off and things to put on. But in order to see this this morning, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do come as your people desiring to hear the word of the Lord this morning. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come, open our eyes of faith this morning. As our confession of faith teaches us, speak to us in and through Holy Scripture, that we might, through the preaching of the Word of God, hear the Word of God. Grant us this, Lord, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Ephesians chapter 4 then, beginning in verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such is, as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. At the first church I served where I was an assistant pastor, uh, we had a young woman start coming to our church and we were thrilled to have her with us. But something soon became apparent about this young woman. She was pregnant and she wasn't married. It was fascinating watching how our PCA congregation divided on how to treat this young woman. There were those who avoided her, refused to talk to her because she was a, a sinner. There were others who talked with her, but, but they studiously avoided talking about the most obvious thing about her life that, right at that moment, this growing belly that had a baby in it. Um, with all the changes and challenges that went with that. And there were others, sadly just a few, who, who came alongside her to care for her and, and her growing child inside her. And, and these divisions actually came to a head when one of the compassionate women wanted to throw a baby shower for this young woman. 
um, these groups struggle to figure out how to do this and the divisions in approach to the young woman, they soon became obvious and it became so conflicted that it eventually came before the section. And we were asked, should the, woman, the women of the church host a baby shower for this young woman who was having a baby out of wedlock? The avoiders and the ignorers They argued that we should not do such a thing because it would condone sexual relations outside of marriage and provide a bad example to our young people that they could could do this and have no consequences. The compassionates argued that they should have a shower because, of course, we're all more than the worst things we've ever done. And besides, even if the mother may have sinned, the child certainly didn't. The church is to care for sinners and innocents alike and to show them compassion and grace. And thankfully, our session sided with the compassionates and the women had a shower for this young woman. But the entire scene is stuck with me now. For for 20 years, I've rolled it over in my head and, and it all hinges on this question. If we were that young woman who had come to the church looking for compassion and grace, how would we want to be treated? And beyond that, since we're all sinners who've done wickedness in God's sight, how do we long for God to treat us? With compassion or condemnation? Truth be told, these questions that that I've thought a lot about in relationship to that scene, they're There are also questions for us here at IPC and and the church culture that that Jesus wants us to be, that that honestly, I think we want to be. As I've watched us and experienced us for nearly six years here, we are remarkably schizophrenic in how we relate to each other. On the one hand, when someone is hurting here, whether it's through poor health or through tragic circumstances, y'all... We're amazing. We show remarkable compassion. And certainly Sarah and I, over the past year since Sarah's cancer diagnosis, we have seen and known that the sweetness of that compassion firsthand. But on the other hand, the accusations, the condemnation, the criticism, the slander that I and others have received, honestly, it's been abusive and devastating. People haven't told the truth, and when confronted with the truth, have said, well, that's your truth. I have my own truth, and really the truth doesn't matter. And that's not just me, and that's not just the pastors who've experienced this. Many, many people who have been part of our congregation through the years, staff and officers uh, and congregants, they've all experienced this kind of abusive toxicity. It's exactly what the Apostle Paul here in what we read together is calling you and me to put off. He he calls it corrupting talk. Do you see that? He said that in verse 29, right at the beginning of what we read. He said, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. The New Testament scholar Peter O'Brien observed that the word for corrupting here is used elsewhere in the New Testament for decaying trees that produce rotten fruit. That's Matthew 7. Or for rotten or rotting fish. 
Matthew 12. And so apply that to here. Corrupting talk is, is rotten, decaying kinds of talk. Unhealthy, unwholesome, harmful. It, it's more than lies. Paul addresses lies in verse 25. No, it's, it's actually harmful speech of any kind that he's talking about here, whether abusive language, or vulgar speech, or slander, or gossip, or contemptuous talk. And in fact, Paul will go on in what we read to specifically call us to reject specific kinds of corrupting, decaying, and rotten talk. He does that in verse 31. Do you see it? He said, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Of course, Jesus was the one who taught us in Matthew chapter 12 that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And that's what this list of vices here in verse 31 gets at. It involves both heart motivation and verbal action. Bitterness, wrath, and anger become evident in clamor, slander, and malice. Heart sins become verbal sins. But these heart sins of bitterness, wrath, and anger, when they're, when they're nurtured, they move us away from compassion, away from courtesy and civility, away from gentleness and long-suffering. And they become expressed in quarreling, in clamor, in slander of others, in malice. And here's the danger. The danger of corrupting talk is we can grieve God. We can grieve God. That, that's what Paul says, that we might grieve the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. You see it in verse 30? Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. And verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. I grew up in a tradition that talked a lot about grieving the Holy Spirit. I can recall countless sermons in the chapel at Bob Jones University where college, we college students were warned not to grieve the Holy Spirit. But most often, the sins that purportedly grieve the Holy Spirit were sexual sins. So don't look at porn or you'll grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't go too far with your girlfriend or your boyfriend or you'll grieve the Holy Spirit. Be sure you keep a watch over your eyes or you're going to grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, I do think those things are true. Paul talks about those kinds of things in 1 Corinthians 6 and in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. However, in this context, I think it's important for us to see that grieving the Holy Spirit who dwells within us is actually bookended not with sexual sins, but with, with using corrupting, rotten, corrupt... Uh, words, to, using those words to destroy each other. And so verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Verse 31, let all bitterness, wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you with, along with all malice. In other words, when we use these kinds of words, corrupting words, bitter, angry words, gossipy words, to destroy each other. We're grieving God. Of course, the problem is we savor these kinds of words, don't we? We love the kind of gossipy words that fit our narrative and, and stir our wrath and anger, our indignation and bitterness. We like actually being in kind of a high dungeon. How dare he say that? I can't believe that they did that. What's going on over there? These are words that war. 
that can be harsh and vindictive and often false. Of course, these words may not be verbal. They may be a bitter, slanderous email or text message that's forwarded to hundreds and hundreds of others. These words may not be broadcast publicly, but shared in twos or three, with twos or threes over dinner or at the club or while playing golf. Friends, we don't want to be this way. I know you don't want to be this way. And in fact, the Bible specifically tells us that we're not to be and act this way. Instead, God calls us to live out of compassionate hearts. You see what Paul says in, in verse 32? He says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted. Kindness and tenderheartedness. These are both how God treats us. Earlier in Ephesians, Paul will say that we are saved so that in the coming ages, God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And tenderheartedness is how Jesus views us and treats us. Remember Matthew chapter 9? When Jesus is looking at the crowds, he says, the text says, when, when he saw the crowd, he had compassion for them. He was tender-hearted towards them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. But Paul tells us that this is not just how God treats us. He treats us with kindness and tender-heartedness, but he's telling us here this is how we are to be towards one another. Kindness and compassion, tender-heartedness and gentleness, grace and graciousness, and compassionate hearts offer courtesy and civility in our words. I mean, that's, that was part of verse 29, wasn't it? Look at verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Here in verse 29, Paul actually offers us three tests for our words. The first is, are my words good for building up? That's the purpose test. Before I say my words, are they good for building up? Is that the purpose for why I speak? Second, do my, do my words fit the occasion? That's a timing test. Is this the time to say these words? And then third, do my words give grace to those who hear him? What's the expected result? Is my expected result to give grace or to tear down? And so purpose, timing, result. I wonder how our relationships with one another would be transformed if we thought through the purpose, timing, and result of our words before we spoke, before we wrote and forwarded an email, before we sent the text message, or before we posted on social media. If we, if we thought about how we, out of compassion and hearts, we, we use our words well, wouldn't our church become a safe place where we know that even at our worst moments, we won't get trashed with bitter gossip? Where, where we could talk or teach about difficult matters, believing that people will represent what we actually said, not what they thought we said, not what they wished we said, or what they misheard that we said, but that what we actually said where we don't have to live in a swirl of gossip and manipulation and innuendo, but that we might be a place of protecting each other's reputations. And sometimes that requires telling the truth about what happened. And especially 
if our compassionate hearts that produce compassionate words would be matched with compassionate ways. And the chief way Paul tells us here we show compassion is forgiveness. Right? That's the very last words of this section. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. One of the things that's become obvious to me in, in 20 years of ordained ministry is that most people have no idea how to forgive someone. Our forgiveness of each other is modeled on the forgiveness that we have experienced in Jesus Christ, right? That's what he says, as God in Christ forgave you. Well, how does God forgive us in Christ? God separates our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. He places them behind our backs so that he doesn't see them anymore. No matter where he turns, he cannot see them. He allows them to be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ so that he can't see them through the blood. He, he deals with us based on our relationship with him, not on our failures. And God forgives us our sins of commission and omission, our, our sins of, of thought, word, and deed, the sins we name and the sins that we've forgotten. His forgiveness is all-encompassing because he loves us. His compassion is upon us. He is kind and tenderheartedness. Has, is, he's kind and tenderhearted towards us. And that's, friends, how we're to forgive. Just as God in Christ forgave you, but y'all, we don't do that very well. I have sat with married couples in my counseling room, working through deep hurts and wounds. And even when one person genuinely confesses sins and failures, and asks for forgiveness. It's so hard for that other person to cover those sins under love, to say, I forgive you, and then actually to put it behind their back so that they might remember it no more. And so what happens? Well, a couple months later, the couple's right back in my office in the same place, stuck, because they've not been able to embrace a daily lifestyle of confession and forgiveness. I've talked at some length with other men whose fathers never confessed, never repented, never sought forgiveness for anything. And how profoundly wounding that is, this legacy of, of unrepented, unforgiven wounds. I've sat in people's living rooms and I've told them how I have failed, how, I, how that made them feel. And I've asked for their forgiveness and have heard them tell me, we forgive you, only to see them work to undermine and destroy me. What would it look like if we showed compassion towards each other by forgiving one another? Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that there aren't some big sins, abuse, adultery, uh, even murder, that prevent reconciliation, that can cause us not to forgive quickly, well, or sometimes at all. Nor am I saying that compassion and forgiveness means we shouldn't hold people accountable, shouldn't set up appropriate boundaries, or sometimes um, even as elders discipline someone, and if necessary, report that discipline to the congregation. But what I am saying is that for most of what we deal with in our life together, compassionate hearts, kind words and actions, and forgiveness would go a long way towards making us the church culture Jesus wants us to be. 
Because such compassion allows us to walk around in another person's shoes. And we begin to see that they're hurting too. They're hurting just like us. But also to see as we walk around in their shoes that they're loved by Jesus too. Just like us. You may have seen the news this past week that the author and Presbyterian minister Frederick Beekner passed away at the age of 96. If you're not familiar with Beekner's writings, his corpus is actually remarkably broad. He was a novelist. One of his novels, Godric, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in 1981. He wrote sermons and theological reflections and a theological dictionary and, and memoir, lots of memoir. But Beekner was especially adept at, at crystallizing ideas and thoughts in, in pithy and remarkable ways. And he did so with the idea of compassion. This is what Beekner said. Compassion is the sometimes fatal capacity for feeling what it's like to live inside somebody else's skin. It is the knowledge that there can never really be any peace and joy for me unless there's peace and joy finally for you too. That's exactly right. And that's what I long for for us, that we would demonstrate such compassion, the compassion that allows us to get inside someone else's skin, even if it's fatal for us, which of course is the very compassion of Jesus, isn't it? Because after all, Jesus did get inside our skin. He took the very worst that we could possibly do to him, and he forgave us everything. Shouldn't we do the same? Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, here in a minute, we're going to sing that we want to be Christians in our hearts. Lord, this is a challenging word for us, that we would show compassion and put away all of the bitterness, wrath, anger that produces clamor, slander, and malice. Lord, grant us grace to become the people you desire us to be, truly human, compassionate and kind and tenderhearted. And Lord, grant us grace to live this way with one another here in our church and in the other relationships we have. Grant us this, Lord, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take your hymnals. Let's